You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and uh, privilege to welcome you um, to Sojourn this morning. If you're a guest, I would uh, just highly encourage you uh, to take one of those steps of connecting with us. Um, We're going to look at uh, the scriptures this morning that um, tell us a little bit about sort of what our relationship as the people of God is supposed to look like. We're going to talk about this idea uh, that we are family and so would want for you to experience uh, the family nature of the church before sort of the the event side of things uh, on, a, on a Sunday morning. And so, um, although this is more than an event, an event what we're doing here. Um, and so we just invite you to that. And especially with the Vision Sunday thing, it's just a, it's a great time. Uh, for, for me specifically, uh, to be able to be sort of more uh, in, engaged with, with you guys and aware of kind of who's new. And so I would love to put a name uh, to a face um, if you're filling out one of those Connect cards uh, as well. So would love to see you there. Um, with that said, um, we're going to kind of dive into what it is that we're talking about this morning. Um, we started a series last week entitled Life Together. Um, and we do this uh, really once a year. It's kind of a, an, an annual series where uh, we sort of revisit our collective hopes and dreams together. We look at the vision uh, that we believe the Lord has, has given to us here at Sojourn for how He would have us uh, to organize and to live life uh, in, in a faithful way. Um, and so I, I'm excited to do that, but I do want to preface it with exactly the same thing that I said last week because I think it's important. Um, when we talk about uh, the, the vision of sojourn, right? Um, what we are not doing is saying that this is the way that sort of all, all churches should order and organize themselves, right? So um, that, that's not what we're trying to get at. We're not trying to collectively sort of stroke our, our ego here. Um, but what we do want to say is that um, we do believe that it is a way and we do believe that it is our way. And all that we mean by that is that we really believe that the Lord has given us a humble conviction, right? Humble in saying that it's not the way, but a conviction in saying that it is a way and it is our way. Um, the way that we believe God has called us to order ourselves together uh, in this time, in this place, for God's glory and our joy in this city. Um, and so just know that. Uh, as we get into to talking about these things, we do want to be faithful and self-aware role players, allowing our theology to drive our common practices uh, and our values together. Um, so that's what we're doing. That's it, quite simply. So we're going to jump into Galatians chapter 3 together this morning, and we're going to talk about how we are family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, just to be gathered together. I pray, Father, that we would be reminded this morning that our unity does not consist in affinity um, or, or in uh, likeness of anything other than the fact that we are in Christ, that we are adopted sons and daughters uh, brought into the wide open arms of the triune family by the grace that you have afforded to us in the work of your son Jesus and by the power of your spirit. And so may we be reminded, Lord, this morning that if we are Christians in the room this morning, we are not in a room of strangers. We are in a room of family. We are are in a room in which we belong not only to you, but to one another. And that is 
by your grace, for your glory, and for our joy. Uh, Pray that your spirit would speak to us this morning from your word, uh, again, for your glory and for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to talk about this idea that we are family, and I think that if we had sort of a a synthesizing statement for the entire sermon so that you can check out if you want to, uh, it would be this. Uh, We are adopted into one family now and forever. That's essentially, we're just going to kind of dissect that based on what the Word has for us here. Now, um, the the unfortunate reality is that there are a lot of different cultural understandings of um, not only what church currently is, but what church could be or should be. Um, and unfortunately, most of those, whether, uh, whether coming from the secular world or whether coming from the Christian world, are often um, woefully inaccurate, um, much, much less biblically informed. And so um, I'm looking forward to allowing what this Bible has to say about you and about me in light of who we are in Jesus letting that wash over and erode all of those misunderstandings. And so, but before we jump into Galatians chapter 3, what I, want us to, what I want us to do and understand is this. This idea of, of God's people being a family together is not something that's isolated purely to Galatians chapter 3. All right, so I, I want us to know that um, Marshall didn't just go find the one verse that sort of works with what he wants to say, and then he's going he's gonna to say it. But rather, I want us to see that this is thematic. This, this, is, this is overarching in the Bible. This is overarching in human history that God would have a people to himself, not only to whom he reveals himself, but through whom he reveals himself, and that that people would be a family. Right? It begins, it begins with God himself. Right? In that God exists in the context of a family, right? Let's, let's be reminded that God could have used any metaphor, any, any analogy, any way of sort of communicating the way the Godhead interacts, but he, but he uses Father. He uses Son. He uses Spirit, right? So we have a God that expresses Himself in the context of a family who then goes on to create the human family as as an image bearer, right? So God at the beginning of all things creates everything, looks at it, says, this is good, except for what? That the man is alone, right? So God says, look, I've created man in my own image, but here's the thing, I don't live in isolation, and so it's not good, nor is it accurate that the man should be in isolation as my image bearer. And so he creates woman, the human family, And so if the primary metaphor for God himself is family, and if the primary way that he is imaged before us is in the context of human family, then it follows that the primary metaphor for the church is also family. Very well-respected theologian Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, the most important picture of the church in all of the New Testament is that of a family. And so this is what Paul writes to the church at Galatia, starting in verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, there's a lot in there that I would love to to get at and touch upon, but that we don't have time for. But suffice it to say this, Paul is making a contrast here, right? Like so much of his writing, between this idea that one could be justified by doing good works. Now, if we want to simplify the word justified or justification, it simply means to be right before God, right? So, Paul is addressing this idea that, hey, look, much of what the world tells us is that if we do X, Y, and Z, then we will be made right, justified before God. But he's saying, look, that's not the case. We are justified, what? By faith in who? In Jesus, right? So it says that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. This shouldn't be an unfamiliar idea to us, hopefully, right? This idea that our identity, this idea that our righteousness, our right standing with God is not something that we earn, but something that we receive right? That it's a gift of grace, right? That's that famous passage in Ephesians. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, so that none can boast, right? Should be familiar with that. And the reason that this this topic is so important is that it is at the heart of the most important and the, the most ongoing theological debates in our history. That's why Paul continually writes about how we're justified. That's why things like the Reformation came to pass. It was a question of justification. How are we made right before God? But here's the thing. Because this idea of justification has been at the center of our biggest theological debates, it has also been our biggest theological focus. And so here's what's happened. The doctrine of justification, this idea that we are made right with God through Jesus' works, not our own, has essentially become the sum total of, of what we view salvation to be. So when we say, I'm saved, right, what, what our mind first goes to is that. There's this legal declaration that because of Jesus, I'm declared right before God. That's what it means to be saved. Now, that is not a bad thing (laughs) whatsoever. In fact, it's massively important that we understand that. But it is an incomplete thing. And here's what I mean by that. When justification is looked at as the whole of salvation, salvation simply becomes a legal declaration where you are, by God, declared to be righteous. But that is not a comprehensive enough view of what salvation is. The Bible, I believe, points us to an even more important reality and a consequence of God's mercy through Jesus' work ignited by the Spirit that is the fountainhead of our salvation. In essence, what I'm saying is that I don't think that justification is the starting point for us. But rather, it starts here. And this is what 25 and 26 say. But now that faith has come, 
we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Here's, here's what I think and what I believe that Galatians is telling us here. The fountainhead of our faith is not our justification, it's our union with Christ. It's our union with Christ. What does he say? It's two very simple words. Starting in verse 26, in Christ. It's because you're in Christ, then it goes on to tell us what? That we are all sons of God through faith. So by God's mercy, through Jesus' work, and with the regeneration of the Spirit, we're united to Christ, and it's because we are in Christ that we receive all of the benefits thereof, like His righteousness or our justification. But not just that also our adoption as sons of the living God. So do you see what I'm saying? It's by virtue of us being united to Christ that we are justified by His works. It's by virtue of being united to Christ that we also experience the invitation into the common family of God, right? So it starts with being united to Christ, and it's in Christ that we experience all the blessings that are due Christ for who He is and for what He has done. It is because we are in Christ, not because we're justified, it's because we're in Christ that we are sons and daughters. And just real briefly, I know that some of you are saying, wait, it doesn't say daughters in there, and that's because the Bible is patriarchal and despises women and this, that, and everything else. Um, And that's just not true. I don't have a lot of time to get into it, but Paul is speaking in the cultural parlance of the times, right? So what does he say? He says, for you are all sons. You are all sons. And he'll, we'll, go, we'll read the next couple of verses towards a different point, but he goes on to describe who all of those sons are. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male, female, all sons. What does that mean? Well, in this culture, right, to be a son meant to be a beneficiary of of the inheritance, that you were the one who would receive the inheritance from the Father. And so when Paul calls women sons, he's saying, you also have the inheritance. And so what Paul is saying is not chauvinistic, it's radically, radically inclusive in this day and age. It doesn't degrade women, it it values them, it esteems them. So anyway, I had to mention that just briefly. So, because we are in Christ, right, because we are united to Him, we experience God's adoption. It says, that's what it says, in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Membership in His own family. In Christ, us being united to Him, the arms of the Trinity now are open wide, collecting us into this glorious and beloved family. So you see, our salvation is not just a transactional means by which we gain justification. No, no, no. It's union with Christ by which we get justification, but but, but also by which we are adopted into the very same family. And that's why it's important 
That's why it's important for us to make this distinction. That's why it's important for us to know that it's our union with Christ that is the fountainhead of our salvation. Because if we simply have a partial view of what our salvation is, we will also have a partial view of what the church is. If our view of salvation is simply, again, a transaction between God and the individual, we will look at the church in individualistic terms. And so, what we're gathered around is our affinity, namely that we've said, Jesus is my righteousness, rather than gathered around the fact that we are united to Christ, and because we're united to Christ, we're united to one another, irrespective of everything else. Does that make sense? So we're adopted. And we're adopted into one family. And I think that Paul then gives us a really, really great illustration in just a short verse when he says this in 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So again, Paul just reinforces this idea, doesn't he? That when we're being baptized, what we're doing is we're not primarily communicating that we're justified. We're primarily communicating that we're united to Christ, that we are in Him and that we have put Him on, that we are in Christ. You see what I mean? If we think of salvation simply as justification, then baptism becomes this personal thing, this personal decision that we need to make, that we need to pray about, that we need to think about. And there's, a, there's something happening between God and man, and so you can just kind of take me out and baptize me in the middle of nowhere with no, no one around. And yet that's not, that's not the case. That's not what's happening here. Right? Baptism is not only an individual sacrament by which we both proclaim and put on our union. It is a communal sacrament given to the church to remind us that our union with Christ necessitates our union to each other. And so baptism, yes, communicates justification that we trust Jesus for our right standing, but it also communicates our union with Christ, right? That's why we say, buried with Christ in the likeness of His death, raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is a comprehensive sacrament in that it communicates our justification. It communicates our union with Christ. It communicates our initiation into the family of God, these people here. Which is why when we baptize people at Sojourn, we put them up front. And it's not just me up here going, I baptize you, my brother. It's all of us extending a hand and saying, we baptize you, saying, we welcome you into this family. That's what this means. That's what union with Christ means. It means union with us too. Think of it this way. I had the great privilege uh, a couple of years ago of being at uh, an adoption ceremony for my friends and their uh, little two-year-old foster girl. Baptism is the adoption ceremony. That's what it is. It's where in the presence of the judge and in the presence of witnesses, we proclaim that a new identity has been given, a new name, a new family, and a new inheritance. A completely and entirely new reality that what was broken has been redeemed, given into this new reality, this new future, this new direction, this new course, this new people. 
This connection is not tenuous at all, because look at, look at how Paul continues to write. Verse 28. Oh, I'll start, let's just connect it to 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what, again, what's Paul telling us? Paul is telling us that we are adopted into one family. We're adopted into one family. And what does that family look like? Crazy is the answer. Crazy, right? It's diverse. There's Jew and Greek. There's slave and free. There's male and female. And I'm sure many other distinctions that Paul doesn't go on to list because he wants you to actually... Get what he's getting at here. It's a diverse family. And what's Paul saying here, right? This family is not a family because they've all of a sudden become homogenous. They've laid down all their differences and now they're just, they all look the same, right? No. He's not saying that there's no more Jews in the church because there are. He's not saying there's no more Greeks in the church because there are. He's just saying that their differences don't matter like they used to. They don't matter to the degree that they used to. It's that their primary identity was no longer a national, social, or biological identity. You see, God doesn't erase our differences with our union in Christ. He brings them together. He makes it possible for us to belong to one another in spite of them. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Think about that in the kind of culture that that we live in today, which is very much separatist in nature. If you're not like me, I have the option to gather elsewhere based on my affinities. But brother and sister, this morning, if you're a Republican in the room, you have more in common with a Christian Democrat than a non-Christian Republican. And the same works both ways, all right? So don't, I'm not assuming that everyone in here is Republican. That works both ways. You have, get, get this, all right? M- most of us, young, 20s, white, for the most part, right? You have more in common with a 90-year-old Chinese Christian than your white millennial co-workers. That's what, you have more cause for unity. You have more cause for family because you're in Christ. You see, it's nothing spectacular. There's nothing spectacular about gathering a bunch of people together that look the same, talk the same, make about the same amount of money, and enjoy the same things. That's what the rest of the world is doing. No big deal. You know what is a big deal? When people who are wildly different unite under one banner and they allow that banner to smooth and to massage and to round those edges so that we can collectively express our common identity. Our differences exist. They just don't matter like they used to. Not in Christ. 
And so Paul says that it's our union with Christ by which we're justified. It's our union with Christ by which we're adopted, not only adopted to him, but to this greater family in which there is a diverse peoples who are not made less diverse, they're just redeemed into diversity. And then in verse 29, it says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it's not just a diverse family, it's a distinct family. And this is, again, where we get to see how God is working on a historical scale, right? This is not isolated. This is Paul linking us together as a family, not just because he says so, but because it was always God's intent to have a people, right? We said this last week, to have a people, not only to whom he reveals himself, but through whom he reveals himself to the world, and that that people would be a family, is it not? That's the promise to Abraham, right? Father Abraham who had many sons. His promise to Abraham was what? That he would have a large family and that it would be to that family that God would reveal himself and that it would be through that family that God would then reveal himself to the world, that they would be a family of priests mediating the relationship between God and man. It's striking the unity between the Testaments here. You see, we, t- we tend to look at the Old Testament and go, oh, that's all totally irrelevant. That's a different God. He just kind of changed midway through and he got nicer. It's not true. God has always been doing the same thing. He's always been doing the same thing, calling together a people for himself to belong to him, to whom he would reveal himself, through whom he would reveal himself to the world. That's what he has done, is doing, and will complete. Anyone can get in on that. So here's the thing, right? We said that we're adopted into one family. And if I just sort of finish off this this statement that I made at the beginning, we're we're adopted into one family now and forever. Um, Here's the thing. So now we're going to talk about this idea of now and forever. I think many of us would say, Marshall, that's great. I love that vision for the church. I love this idea of distinctions being brought low because we're willing to humble ourselves to Christ first and not to our preferences. I love this, I love this Acts 2 image of the church where people belong to each other. They're breaking bread in their home, right? Like all those things look and sound wonderful to me. But you know what? When I look at the church, it's just so jacked up, man. I just don't see it playing out that way. Well, what I would say to you is that you are missing a key part of of this particular text, and that is this, that Paul is writing these words to and about a dysfunctional church. This is a broken church, y'all. You know why he's mentioning Jews and Greeks? It's because they're fighting. It's because Jews still think they're a little bit superior and, and because Greeks say, you know what, those guys are all jerks. It's because they're slave and free and it's because the free man goes, well, surely that guy did something. That's well, too bad he wasn't more successful. 
Doesn't he know that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him? That's why. And yet, what Paul is writing to and about them is true of them. Irrespective of the dysfunction that's present. Even in their dysfunction, the church is family right now. The church as family is not some distant ideal that we're striving for in the dark, hoping that we stumble upon it. It's a present reality. This is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer would put it. He says this, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God, here's those two words again, in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of all our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. So what's, what's Bonhoeffer saying? He's saying that when we look at our union with Christ and therefore to one another, that it takes the pressure off. Right? That's what he says. He says, when we begin to understand that, we will, right? And this is a quote. We will think more serenely of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. You see, our vision for the church's family, although not realized it in its entirety right now, right? Like, let's just admit that we're broken here to some extent. Probably more than we even realize. But if we understand our union, if we understand our adoption because of our union, then our outlook for the church is not one of despair, but it's one of hope. It's peacefully stepping into the chaos of sinfully broken relationship with the peace of Christ, knowing, knowing that things might be jacked up now, but we're going to a place where they're not. That the trajectory for the Christian church is one towards family, not away from it. No matter how dysfunctional it seems right now. No matter how strained some of your relationships might be, even in this church right now, you are still family because you are united to Christ and to one another. And so here's what I would say. Brothers and sisters, let's not, let's not love our ideal of what the church can or should be more than what God by His grace has made that community to be right now. Let's not love some future version of what we could be more than we love what we are right now by God's grace. Because you know what's often happening when we do that? What's often happening in that moment when we look at the church in despair for what we want it to be or hope it to be? What's often happening is that we're trying to fashion others into our image rather than seeing all of us fashioned into God's image. One of those things tears us apart. The other thing brings us together. 
So let me make a case for two things that I think are integral to this process, and, I, and, and they're, they're not at all different from what we talked about last week. I want to talk about why proximity matters to experiencing the church as family, and I want to talk about why longevity matters to experiencing the church as family. Let's talk about proximity, right? And I'm going to use the exact same article that we talked about last week. There was an article in the New Yorker talking about um, how commuting affects our relational lives, right? And it, it made this statement. For every 10 minutes you commute, you will have 10% fewer relational connections. So for every 10, 10 minutes of commute, 10% fewer relational connections. Right? And we said last week that essentially all that's telling us is very simple, that physical proximity matters for relational depth. That if you want to experience vibrant relationship, if, you, if there's people that you want to live in relationship with, it necessitates that you live close to them. Last week we talked about in the context of of really loving and serving our neighbors, that we can't be neighbors to those that we are not. We can't love our neighbor if we're not their neighbors. But I think this week, when we talk about it in the context of family, let's just think of it this way, right? Your best family memories were made during the times that you were all together, right? Like nobody says, hey, remember that great email chain? Oh, remember that... that that Instagram hashtag with all those photos that we shared of each other in our doing our own things? Like, no, nobody does that. Remember that great group text that made me want to just shoot my phone? No. The best memories that we have of our family are those times that we spend together. And what the New Yorker is telling us is that if we want to live life together and if we want to spend time together, we should probably live close to one another. But here's something else that proximity does for us. When, when we choose to live life, Christian life, in the context of the Christian community that lives closest to us, not the one that we commute to, it forces us it forces us to confront these issues that we may have. It doesn't allow us to be choosy. You see right now, if you don't like the way I preach, or if there's someone in here that you don't like, you just go find another group of white millennials worshiping in another church on another part of the city where the pastor says different things in different ways, maybe better, maybe worse, I don't know, whatever, right? And it doesn't matter that it's 20 minutes away or 30 minutes away or 40 minutes away. And yet what the New Yorker is telling us and what I think the Bible is telling us is that these relationships happen in proximity. The smaller that the distance gets, the less luxury you have to pick based on affinity because you're doing life with the Christians that live next to you in the neighborhood that God has planted you in, sent you to, to love and to serve for the time that he has you there, as Acts, 6, uh, Acts 17 tells us, right? That God has ordained those boundaries for you so that people within those boundaries might seek him and perhaps find him. You don't get to choose your earthly family. Why should it be the same with your church family? 
And this is why we try to order our neighborhood parishes by location, right? So what, when, we, when we invite you to a neighborhood parish, what we're not first saying is, hey, uh, try a few out and find the people that you have the most in common with and that you like the most and get along easiest with and uh, do life with them. What we're saying is, no, like, find the one that's closest to where you live and go to that one, in spite of the fact that there might be people in there that you have nothing in common with. Great, you're an engineer. They really like comic books. Figure it out. Like, it'll be all right. In Christ, it'll be all right. Proximity matters to us experiencing the church's family. It just does. But so does longevity. You see, vulnerable, trusting, tight-knit family relationships are formed over, at the very least, 18 years of steady-state life together, right? The same is true of us. And this is also true. Right? The brokenness and the imperfections of this local church family, they're not going to be fixed tomorrow. They're just not. And so if you want to be a part of the solution, it's going to necessitate, again, giving of your time. Time is simply a necessary ingredient to everything that we want to see happen in our own lives, in the life of this church, and in the life of this neighborhood. It's not going to be one of those things where I'm going, to go, I'm going to go to that church for a year while I'm single and don't mind paying $2,000 a month for rent. Right? It's just not. But here's the thing. I think when we commit to this understanding of our adoption that includes us into this one family, not just in the future, but now, and not just now, but forever. If we do that, then our neighborhood and our city will begin to look quite different. And here's what I mean by that, right? Houston is lauded all over the country and all, all over the world. Why? We're the most ethnically diverse city in the country. We are the future of what America will look like, right? We finally beat New York at something, <laughs> although I might argue food too, right? We are the most ethnically diverse city in the country. But here's the dark underbelly. We're also the most segregated major American city. We're the most segregated. And that's not just black-white, that's black-white, that's black-Asian, that's, that's it's everything. We are the most segregated city in North America, major American city. And so what does that mean? It means that we value the idea of diversity, but we're not willing to step into the discomfort that diversity often brings. And so we separate out into our little cultural enclaves. And so here's the reality, brothers and sisters, what the world aspires to, what the world says that's a beautiful vision of what the, the future can be is only possible if we're in Christ. That's it. 
it's only possible in that way. It's the only worldview that allows for the kind of humility in which we consider others more significant than ourselves, in which these distinguishing factors become are still distinguishing, but they are not something that precludes us from fellowship together. And so to the extent that we commit ourselves to this family, this gospel family, to that extent will we be a compelling portrait of the new humanity that God is fashioning. I want to conclude with this, right? Started, started the, the sermon with the statement, we're adopted into one family now and forever. We've talked about everything except the forever. And I really, I just want to conclude with, with one final quote. It's a little bit longer, and so I'm just going to read it. But we're not just a family now, right? We're a family forever. And so here's how Bonhoeffer, again, uh, would put it. He says, our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. This is true not merely at the beginning, as though in the course of time something else were to be added to our community. It remains so for all the future and to all eternity. I have community with others and I shall continue to have it only through Jesus Christ. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and His work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We have one another only through Christ, but through Christ we do have one another, holy and for eternity. And the reason I want us to end there is because I think in that place, in that place, do we find comfort for those of us who have experienced the broken nuclear family? Which, if we're honest, that's probably all of us, right? Maybe some of you haven't experienced that, and either, either there's a whole lot more going on under the surface, or you're just the unicorn in the room this morning. right? But this is the comfort for that, because in our union with Christ, we're given the best Father. And in our union with Christ, we are drawn into the most loving family, the most considerate family, the most welcoming family, the most joyful family. And so if your nuclear family is broken, just know you have an expression of a new and more glorious family now, and you'll experience it in greater measure and in greater glory forever. but it also gives us hope for the broken Christian family. The broken Christian church family is what I mean by that. And that, look, you might be sitting in here this morning with real conflict with somebody else that belongs to this church. And you know what? In glory, it'll be forgotten. And you'll embrace each other. And you'll greet each other with a holy kiss. That is our trajectory, that is our destination, that is where we are going, and we want to experience as much of it as we can in the here and in the now, by God's grace. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again for this morning. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you, Lord, that we belong not only to you, but to one another. And as we come to the table this morning, Lord, may we be reminded not just that we're justified, but may we be reminded that we are united to Christ and that we have received all of the attendant benefits, including adoption into one family now and forever. What a rich grace and mercy it is to be among the brethren this morning. We pray for those of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, who are in isolation, who are in jail cells for the sake of the name, for the sake of faith. And we pray right now, Lord, that you would tangibly meet with them, that your spirit would be there, reminding them that although they experience a lack of fellowship now, there will be no want for it in the kingdom to come. And we repent, Father. We repent for the ways in which we have disdained this great gift when so many pine for just a taste. Lord, be gracious to us as we conclude this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen.